I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS, or find them online at lp.reverb.com. Hi everyone, Mark with a C here, host of Discography. Just popping in before we begin today's show to let you know, these shows were finalized in September and October of 2018. And of course, since then, we've seen that Pete Townsend has ended his sabbatical by announcing a new Who tour and a new Who album for 2019. We had no idea that those things were in the works while producing the show, of course, and we couldn't mention it because, well, the future simply hadn't happened yet. But we thank you for tuning in, and without any further ado, please enjoy this episode of Discography on CPN. Hello and welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this year's show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective. And discography can be a very personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front. So hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Yes, we still have a lot more to cover. We are picking up right in 2002 in a dark place. It is a dark place in Who history where we're at now. John Entwistle has just passed away the day before The Who was supposed to start a tour. They went forward with it anyways because Pete Townsend couldn't bring himself to, well, basically fire everybody in the entire Who organization. What's going to happen next? Well, we've already covered so much, but if we want to catch up to the present, we've got to get going now. There's no time like the present. Thanks for coming along for the journey. Here we go. As a matter of fact, you know, let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. There's no time like the present. It's not going to get easier to talk about. Let's just do this. Like, okay, if you thought that John Entwistle's passing would be a shakeup for the Who, here's the elephant in the room. I'll tell you, I fought long and hard with myself over how to bring this up, especially as we just spent our season on Janet Jackson doing our very best to avoid all the drama and the gossip. But this is such a vital component to address, so I'm just going to state some facts. And I'm going to try to move on without much editorial commentary, but on January 13th of 2003, Pete Townsend was taken into custody by British authorities under the Protection of Children Act. The allegations were pretty simple and direct. Authorities had reason to believe that Pete had logged on to a website containing child pornography, even going as far as to enter his credit card number. Pete's response was that, yes, he had in fact done this very thing but it was research for a project he was writing under the title A Different Bomb, and he'd release his findings on his EOPi website in an attempt to prove that companies were profiting financially from these sites, which he did release those findings. The investigation went on for a very, very long time, with most of Pete's computers, hard drives, and even family photos all having been seized. At the end of this part of what was called Operation Orr, Pete received a caution and was placed on a sex offender's registry for a number of years. Pete would go on at length about this in his autobiography, Who I Am. He'd also claim that his early traumas would sort of blind him to the proper course of action in such a situation, and though he seemed to act as transparent as anyone could in such a position, his public image would be forever associated with this ugliness, And there's just no getting around the fact that this was the very definition of a poor life decision. No alleged victims came forward. Pete was temporarily at a standstill, and ultimately, 
I can't find the right things to say about it. So, discography forges ahead. Shockingly, despite all signs, every sign, every freaking sign you can imagine pointing to this being the end of the road, the Who released a compilation album called Then and Now in early 2004. Okay, nothing much surprising there, as these greatest hits Deedly Bob seem to come out like basically with every sunrise, but this time, the first genuine new Who songs since at least 1989 were tacked onto the end and eventually released as singles. One of these was the grandiose Real Good Looking Boy. Have you ever seen a teen? older and wiser duo version of The Who, well, their first single would be a Pete original that Roger would really inhabit quite well, projecting his own experiences of looking in the mirror and pretending to be Elvis Presley, and the stately track would really drive that sentiment home with bits that interpolated Elvis's classic song, Can't Help Falling in Love. A great track, and the other new tune was a gem in its own right, a song called Old Red Wine was the B-side, and it had been written... Uh, through end-of-show jams since around the year 2000, and the song is a blatant and beautiful tribute to John Entwistle, with Pete crafting lyrics about John's love of wine that had gone just a few years past its prime. But perhaps the most apt part of the tribute is that this riff was actually the last thing they had jammed on together on stage in front of people. John may not have contributed to the recording, but John was as present as he could be in this track. try to incorporate both songs into their mini-tours of 2004. Real Good Looking Boy seemed to lend itself a little bit better to the shows, but Old Red Wine would still pop up occasionally as they tried to find its stage footing without John to send riffs back at Pete. The short run of gigs would begin in May of 2004, and just as they'd done on their 2002 jaunt, they'd brought along a company called TheMusic.com to record and release nearly every show as something that attendees can have and hold forever. Pretty surprising for a band that once refused to get on a stage if there was recording equipment present, but good for fans that wanted souvenirs, though it made the notion of collecting every single Who release nigh on impossible for all but the very, very rich. Thankfully, the set lists often didn't differ much from one night to the next, so you could sort of live with just having one or two if that was a consideration at the time. Though Pete and Roger were really seeming to find their feet with the current arrangement, now adding Simon Townsend, Pete's brother to the mix, just to thicken things up, by the time they returned to play for over 30,000 people at a revitalized Isle of Wight festival. Pete seemed to be newly invigorated as a writer. By September of 2005, he was working on a story called The Boy Who Heard Music at his Eel Pie website, allowing people to make suggestions and read his works in progress, which he'd also be borrowing from heavily for his latest batch of songs. Or was it the other way around? He'd also been overjoyed at a piece of software that would allow people to, quote, sit for portraits and have a personalized piece of music spat back at the user, just like all of those synthesizer pieces he'd hoped to achieve for Lifehouse. He offered around a thousand fans the chance to have their own personalized piece of music written for them by this process, known as the Lifehouse method, mostly chosen for taking part in his Boy Who Heard Music project, but... That wasn't going to be the end of the way that Lifehouse would reemerge. Now, in March of 2006, a strange little album appeared under the name Tipton, Entwistle, and Powell called Edge of the World. The story is that Glenn Tipton from Judas Priest decided to make a record with his buddies in 1996, but the record label thought that the lineup was a little too old school to do much in the way of sales. 
It would sadly take the passing of both John Entwistle and drummer Cozy Powell to get Rhino Records to release the album as originally intended. It wasn't a bad rock album, but it was also mostly interesting as just a historical document with little here that would blow the average listener away. John didn't even have any writing credits, his tone and attack didn't seem terribly distinctive most of the time, and frankly, the whole release seemed and seems a little bit opportunistic. However, the most surprising Who developments in decades would follow one right after the other. In June of 2006, the band began what would literally be their first ever actual world tour, and they opened the shows in the very auditorium where Live at Leeds was first recorded. Pete and his then-girlfriend Rachel Fuller, now his wife, would try to do a live webcast called In the Attic before most shows from an Airstream trailer where they'd play songs together, separately and sometimes with friends, with Pete often choosing songs that hadn't been performed in decades or sometimes at all, like I Can't Reach You or Here For More. But if that wasn't surprising enough, The Who were also planning to stream at least three songs from each night on their official website, and still offer that encore series of CDs and DVDs through themusic.com. It's a good thing they did, too, because servers crashed over and over as many people tried to descend on The Who's webcasts just to see what this was all about, until eventually the Encore series would be all that remained to see the tour unless you could make it to a gig. The good news was that there were going to be plenty of shows to choose from. And while the band was quite good on most of these early nights on what would become a ridiculously long jaunt, no doubt strengthened by Pete's brother Simon joining in to thicken up the rhythm guitar and add some backing vocals, one couldn't miss the fact that Roger was... <sighs> Look, Roger was clearly struggling with his voice, and on at least a few occasions, he'd end up leaving the stage altogether, leaving Pete to finish shows all by himself. Now, as Roger had always been the most rock-steady member of the band on stage, eschewing, partying, and shenanigans to always be at his best, this was an especially disconcerting development. you've got to take into consideration that Roger was in his mid-60s when he did that, and he's trying to sing songs that were already hard to sing when he was in his 20s. I mean, I couldn't have done it at his age. Uh, it's amazing that he's even able to pull it off that well in his mid-60s, but there's clearly some struggling going on. It just can't be argued about. No matter what, they would plug away because... The band was really out there touring to proudly tell the world about, drumroll, the first new Who album since 1982. The album Endless Wire was released in October of 2006 and was the first Who album in nearly 25 years. And where do you even start to talk about this thing? I mean, yeah, it's a good Who album, especially with all things considered, but it is so much more so. Let's just dive right in. We kick off with a track called Fragments, which sort of feels like if Baba O'Reilly and Another Tricky Day had a baby that was incredibly well-versed in the existential connection between all of us, except with a lot of vocal harmony. It's a more fitting kickoff than it seems, and not just because it kind of reminds you of various earlier points in the group's career, but okay, bear with me here. So. Endless Wire is an album in two halves. The first 10 songs seem to be intended to stand alone, and then the second LP, assuming that you're listening on vinyl, is devoted to a 22-minute mini-opera called Wire and Glass, though an 11-minute edit had been released to radio for promotional purposes. The mini-opera is about a band of ethnically diverse teenagers who start a band called The Glass Household. And this imaginary band? They were inspired by... Are you ready for this? Ray High's unfinished plans for grid life from Psycho Derelict. And as we can all figure quite easily, 
grid life was the alternate universe way of writing about Lifehouse without actually having to, you know, write Lifehouse. And as Pete had apparently gone back to many of his initial Lifehouse concepts for inspiration to write this album, Endless Wire is more or less the sequel to Who's Next, bringing those long dormant concepts to a close 35 years later. Oh, and to make it a little bit more confusing, most of those first 10 supposedly standalone songs refer to that mini opera story in some way. Even Fragments, which later appears again as Fragments of Fragments. Now, you might be asking yourself, hold on, what's Ray High doing on a Who album? Well, the fact is that Pete recorded a large portion of this album himself, only bringing in other musicians when he was damn good and ready. A few glances at the liner notes, and it's pretty hard to argue that this isn't just a Pete Townsend solo album using the Who name and concepts, with Roger Daltrey guesting on vocals about 75% of the time. That doesn't mean it isn't super cool, but let's not mince words about what's really going on here. Once you get the hang of the duality on display, Endless Wire becomes a pretty wonderful successor to all that came before, and the only regrets it leaves this listener with is that John and Keith couldn't take part as well. So first I'm going to talk about the tunes that I'm pretty sure aren't connected to the overall theme, while also recognizing that Pete and Roger are much, much smarter than I am and much, much smarter than I'll ever be, and I may be wrong about them being unconnected to the glass story. In fact, I'm sure I'm wrong, but let's go with it. The song called Mike Post Theme was the first insight that many fans got into the new Who material, as this was the song they play most often to tease the album's impending release early on in the Endless Wire tour before the album was even out. Mike Post was the cat who wrote oodles of TV theme songs like Hill Street Blues, The A-Team, and so many more. And since The Who had three different songs that had become themes for various CSI shows, Pete likely started to feel quite the kinship with Mr. Post, mentioning how excited he personally felt at merely hearing the first few notes to the now-defunct show Alias, and the way that these themes would seep into the consciousness of the general public. Plus, Pete's banjo strum, his acoustic finger-picking, and his electric guitar playing coalesce into one particularly sweet sonic palette here, and ditto for Black Widow's Eyes, one that Roger would often name-check as one of his very favorites here. With surprise in your Black Widow's eyes, I was prepared to be unprepared, be preparing for life. This tale of Stockholm Syndrome when facing a suicide bomber could have gone dangerously off the rails based on subject matter alone, but Roger makes smart use of his deepening lower register to really sell this one, and Zach Starkey's drums meeting the vocal harmonies of the Townsend brothers push it off the cliff into straight-up classic Who territory. Across the room, I saw your eyes, black window looking back at me. Unfortunately, it was the only song that Zach played on here, as he'd been on tour with Oasis and simply wasn't available. The rest of the percussion on this album is either handled by Rachel Fuller's drummer, Peter Huntington, or a drum machine. Speaking of Rachel, though, she appears here on Not Enough, which she co-wrote and plays some pretty stunning keyboard on. It's Not Enough seemed to be pushed as the focus single from the album, with many claiming that the song best recaptured the classic Who feel, and I can kind of see that. It's got a bit of a boozy late-night bar band feel, but with typically complex Pete lyrics, fitting a ton of syllables into slower passages, almost like an updated version of Athena from It's Hard, but also a bit like if the narrator of Athena had won the object of his affection but still had to ask themselves, okay, so what now? It definitely should not surprise anyone that there will be some spiritual and religious matters referenced here, but at the same time, they're not like any that have ever graced any of Pete's writing that we've heard yet. There's a stark track featuring only Pete's acoustic guitar and an edgy vocal performance from Roger called A Man in a Purple Dress that contains some pretty heavy critiques of the Catholic figures that had demonized Pete during his legal troubles. And the irony not only wasn't lost on the pair, 
They sounded like they were quietly about to boil over. Of course, later we get the track 2,000 Years with what seems to be layers of mandolins framing the hope that Pete will be worthy when he finally meets his deity and expands on the very idea of what a Who song can be and sound like. To ask if I have loved you To know if I have served you Now, on paper, there's a slight yet really moving 96-second acoustic song where Pete thanks everyone who had his back and believed in him when the world didn't, called You Stand By Me. But the most controversial moment on the record, hands down, is Pete's vocal turn on a song called In the Ether. If you'd been keeping up with the Endless Wire tour, you'd have heard that Pete was intentionally starting to favor sort of a shouted bark over his sweet croon vocally. Like, here's an example of what he was singing like live in 2006. But if you weren't aware of this development, you'd be positively gobsmacked by Pete's delivery on this spacious and downbeat piano ballad. Fans and critics alike seem to agree that this was just not what they'd signed up for, and a few especially uneducated critics had attributed the vocal performance to Roger, if you can believe it, but also, keep in mind, Pete is playing the Ray High character here. And as we've learned from Psycho Derelict, Ray has a really gruff voice. So this makes perfect sense if you've been paying attention. Plus, Pete does reach for and nail a pretty smooth high note in the very same track, so any assumptions that he'd lost a step with his voice, they're simply misguided. But hey, if people didn't like it, they didn't like it, right? Don't you find it odd that, as I mentioned, there's this mini-opera that's a sequel to Lifehouse and Psycho Derelict at the same time, but in the ether, that song was not grouped in with it? And I think that's one of the most maddening things about Endless Wire. The artwork clearly states what is in the mini-opera and what isn't, but only the most devout would be able to connect that most of this stuff actually goes together, period, full stop. And frankly, if in the ether, had been fit into the wire and glass portion of the album, especially in one of the lighter sections, it would have gone a long way. Frankly, I've played with the track list of this album a bunch just to make variants that make the story come together better, but also makes the album flow a little bit more cohesively, and that's my biggest issue with Endless Wire. All of the components are here, but even when you start making sense of the fragments, it can be rather frustrating that the tracklist often plays like a completely finished record that you've accidentally put on shuffle without realizing it. So, anyways, what of this mini-opera? I mean, we're talking about a Who mini-opera here. We are in the leagues of a quick one while he's away here. This is the first one we've gotten from The Who since 1967's Rael from The Who Sellout. It has a lot to live up to, so you're all wondering, how is it? Well, it's pretty good. But the flow is still kind of strange and all over the place, and where those earlier mini-operas seem to flow together seamlessly for a continuous listening experience, this one stops and starts over and over, not really ever letting you lose yourself. Basically, it kind of sounds like unfinished clips of a much bigger thing, almost like the trailer for what the actual opera could be one day. And this doesn't make it bad, but it's the rare time where I'd say that the parts are actually greater than the sum. For example, when you kick off with the absolutely blazing sound round, but within a five minute span, you go from the rough and tumble pick up the piece to the completely out of the blue gentle orchestration of Troby's piano, this is just going to be kind of an alienating listen. But if you can make peace with that, all of the individual pieces are still really good. And just since the record wasn't complex enough, it's pretty tough to find a version of this album that actually just straight up ends with the final track, T in Theater, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. 
Instead, Universal Music had suggested to the band that they stretch out two of the very short pieces from the mini-opera into full-length songs that could be used as singles. The Who did flesh them out, but then they weren't released as singles in pretty much any territories, and instead, they just got crammed at the end of the album, creating two very long reprises of material that isn't actually being reprised. To the record company's credit, they certainly picked the two catchiest songs for the band to give this treatment to, one being the title track, and the other, which absolutely should have been the single, a song called We Got a Hit. We got a hit! clearly and contextually see that these were tacked onto the end of the album as a sort of added value bonus, but it absolutely kills the flow of the record. Depending on where you bought the record, the physical CDs would either come with a bonus live DVD or CD from the then-in-progress Endless Wire tour recorded in France, but... <sighs> okay, listen, I've seen a lot of this tour, and I cannot come up with a single reason why this was the show they pull the tracks from because it just wasn't Roger's finest hour and it's pretty hard to miss. Certainly not the worst gig they could have picked either, but I'm kind of surprised that they didn't choose the gig performed at the Leeds Refectory since it wasn't even released in the Encore series and this seemed like the golden opportunity. If you'll look at the back cover of Endless Wire, the artwork for the Live at Lion bonus discs actually mimics that of Live at Leeds, so it seems like someone else had this idea too. And if you've ever heard any recordings from the lead show, the band was certainly getting their sea legs back. But they were also pretty damn destructive. So what Who fan wouldn't at least be curious? I'm getting way off track. Way off track. All right, back to the point. As the bulk of Endless Wire is about the next generation making new stuff out of the unfinished ideas of those who came before, it's actually sort of fitting that Endless Wire is like a toolkit where you can kind of build your own album. I think we'd all have likely been happier with a bit more cohesion, but it's still a good record, and the final track and the wire and glass concept is among the most affecting, emotional songs the duo could have pulled out of the bag. Tea and Theater. Before we walk from the stage to the bus, will you have some tea? Though Pete has sworn up and down that the song is not autobiographical and not at all rooted in Who history, the lyrical parallels are pretty impossible to ignore. In fact, the song was so effective that it would quickly become the traditional show closer for the band for nearly a decade upon release. Endless Wire is one of the most fun jumbles around, and when you're Pete Townsend tying together nearly every major theme you've entertained since 1970, of course this thing's gonna be a little bit obtuse. Heck, some might even go as far as hanging the obscure and oblique tags to the record. It certainly feels like it was built to be the final recorded word of the Who project, though the packaging, promotion, and presentation does sort of get in the way. It's the rare time where I kind of wish they'd have thrown less extra stuff at the album to get me to buy it, because once you get the thing home, it still doesn't end where it was intended to, and you might have to burn your own copy to hear it the way it was intended, or lift the needle on side four just in time to not hear the added value tracks. Basically, you have to work with Endless Wire, but with enough effort, it'll work for you, becoming a bit of a musical Rorschach test. Look into it long enough, and you'll get exactly what you were meant to get out of it. It might be difficult at first, but when it clicks, it's not gonna let go of you. Thankfully, there's enough wire to go around after all. While the Endless Wire tour was in full swing, Pete also found the time to unleash the Lifehouse method to the public with the help of Lawrence Ball, who had co-written fragments using the software. And for a short amount of time, anyone in the general public could sit for a musical portrait. 
That was April of 2007, and just a month later, The Who had decided to restart their fan club through thewho.com. If you paid your yearly dues, you were going to end up with a very, very special CD called View from a Backstage Pass. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I actually wrote a portion of the press release for this live compilation, so it might be a bit unfair for me to go in-depth about my opinions. In fact, staring back at me while I record this is the signed lithograph that Roger Daltrey wrote to me thanking me for such a thing, so... You know, I really don't feel like I can say all that much about it, but personally, I love the thing. It's two discs worth of live Who spanning the years 1969 to 1976, and it offers us insight to pieces of tapes that in some cases, I didn't even know existed. true, it's not quite live at Leeds, but it's a great window into what's hiding in the vault. Plus, we get around 30 minutes worth of snippets from that San Francisco 1971 show, and frankly, those clips are just going to make you salivate. There's some really exciting takes on Tommy material as captured at Swansea in 1976 that make this thing a must-have for any fan of live Who material. A few years later, a similar product would hit store shelves called Greatest Hits Live, which would pair highlights from the View from a Backstage Pass compilation onto one disc while offering a second disc that highlights live performances from 1989 and beyond. The Who are infamous for putting out more compilations than nearly any other rock band, but you can't argue that some of them aren't getting quite creative. July of 2007 saw the official end of the Endless Wire tour proper in Helsinki, Finland, and also in that month, Vassar College premiered the one and only stage adaptation to date of Pete's novella, The Boy Who Heard Music, the one that had potentially inspired Wire and Glass to begin with, or vice versa. Try as I might, I can't track down any recordings of this, but if the song list that I've seen is correct, it looked to include around 14 songs from Endless Wire, plus a number of songs that have simply never seen the light of day, like Uncertain Girl, She Said, He Said, and There's No Doubt. Reportedly, it was treated as a direct musical with very little dialogue, but beyond the names of a few actors that I don't recognize, I know very, very little about this. However, as someone who thinks that Endless Wire is highly underrated and more than unfairly maligned, I'd love to see the story come together in a bigger way like this, and I can only hope that they've got bigger plans for this material. But speaking of big plans, Murray Lerner, who had brought us the home video version of The Who's 1970 appearance at the Isle of Wight Festival, had been attempting to make what he'd promised would be the Who film to end all Who films. He wanted to top The Kids Are Alright, and could even be seen on his MySpace page begging for footage of songs like Pure and Easy. As the story goes, some financial backers decided that the project wasn't moving quite as fast as they'd like, and the film that materialized seemed to be a very different thing altogether. Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who, was released in September of 2007, and mostly seemed to tell a Cliff's Notes version of the story of the band with a heavy emphasis on Roger's perspective which is really long overdue. If you think about how many wordy interviews Pete had given over the years, you know, it was still a, a really effective film, and even Who fans that might have thought they knew it all got some pretty nifty insights into their earliest days of the high numbers as some of Lambert and Stamp's earliest footage for that film that they'd set out to make back in 1964 finally materialized. Heck, in some countries, if you bought the DVD, you'd get a bonus feature that contained... Okay, hold on to your butts, folks. Actual footage of the concert that gave us the Live at Leeds album. So whether you're a newbie or an enthusiast, Amazing Journey had something neat to offer everyone. But besides touring Australia and parts nearby in 2008, the first inklings of future activity came when Pete mentioned in a blog post that he was working on a project provisionally titled Floss. August of 2009 is the first mention I've found of it, and spoiler alert, this thing has not materialized in any form as of this taping nearly a decade later, but it's been described by Pete at various times as something that sounds like a bit of an art installation, so it may never actually arrive in a traditional format like some of us might expect. 
Roger would also break with tradition to embark on a solo tour in August of 2009. He'd stated on numerous occasions that he needed the live work to keep his voice in shape, and that's almost certainly why the run of gigs was dubbed the Use It or Lose It Tour. And I'm sure that getting the chance to play lots of unexpected songs wasn't too shabby of a proposition either. But only two months in, his voice had gone out completely, and by December, he was having a secret operation to remove precancerous cells from his throat. Somehow, he was back on stage by February of 2010 with The Who to mime a medley of hits for the Super Bowl halftime show, and Roger would continue to tour on and off from this point on if The Who weren't active, even playing Tommy in full on many future dates while he found his vocal footing again. Who activity would start and stop in this period? So like that Tanglewood show from 1970 that I spoke so highly of? A soundboard source was released temporarily in 2010 on a website called Wolfgang's Vault, which purports to be concert promoter Bill Graham's personal archives, while around the first 50 minutes of the show was cleaned up visually. going on with the rights to this show must be a total mess, because the band would even go as far as reissuing the 30 years of Maximum R&B DVD, removing the Tanglewood footage, and replacing it with some of the live shots captured in 1969 at the London Coliseum as a bonus item on a completely unexpected home video release of, get this, the professionally filmed gig that Jeff Stein shot in 1977 at the Kilburn State Theater for the film The Kids Are Alright, but opted to discard. It turns out that the general ban on recording equipment at Who gigs in the 70s was so effective that the Kilburn show, in all of its wonderful ramshackle glory, was one of the few options the band had at their disposal that they felt was suitable for issue from this period. Sometimes I want it. The Who had been reissued a million times in a bunch of different ways, super deluxe reissues, etc. We're going to talk about some of those in an epilogue episode. I think that's the best way that we can put it. It's going to be an epilogue episode. So if it seems like I'm glossing those over, I think that there's a little bit more to say about those, and they don't really so much have a place in the chronology, but I do feel it's important to mention that in 2011, Quadrophenia was given the Super Deluxe reissue treatment, and the real star of this box set was the nearly two hours of Pete Townsend's home recordings that sort of became an alternate reality version of the album. Excitingly, this was our first crack at many unused pieces for the story and the album, not the least of which is the full version of what would have been John's actual theme from Quadrophenia, the gorgeously dark Is It Me, which unfortunately was just stripped for parts and sort of wedged into the song Dr. Jimmy. get back to the show here in just a second, but first, Mark with a C here with a couple of links that matter, and a big thank you to you for listening to Discography. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know when you're actually going to be hearing this. I'm recording this episode, this portion of this episode, on October 24th of 2018. That means I'm just days away from Roger Daltrey's autobiography coming out, and that means, hell, everything that I've told you might be completely different. Also, I'm in a position where... I just found out literally less than, I guess, 48 hours ago now that a video for a song that I did called One of These Are Gonna Be Your Day for my newest album, Obscurity, is on the official ballot for the 61st annual Grammys, so my head is kind of exploding today. Gilmore led the Floyd Brigade, they still had on the turning away, and one of these are gonna be your day. 
course, from where I'm sitting, the real kudos for that honor would go to the directors of the video, Tim Labonte and Madison Durand, but I'm getting far, far ahead of myself. If you want to check out what I do away from discography and the music that I make, markwithac.com. Up top, there's a neat little header bar where if you'll follow those links, it'll take you to my Facebook, facebook.com slash markwithacmusic, or twitter.com slash markfi. Also, if you want to hook up with discography, great way to do it is on Facebook. Yes, that's right. Just search for discography in the search bar on Facebook. But if you want to type it in manually and, uh, you know, really get your fingers dirty, well, I mean, as dirty as they can be on Facebook, I guess they can get quite dirty on Facebook. Boy, that's a road I don't want to go down. Facebook.com slash discography on CPN. CPN is the Consequence Podcast Network. We've got great shows. I mean, we're talking Losers Club. If you're into Stephen King, that, that's your new favorite podcast. There's the Straight Up Consequence of Sound podcast. There's, uh, let's see, This Must Be the Gig, State of the Empire. There's, well, filmography, of course, which, you know, I've really got to make time to hear it. And I know that there's been a season on Kubrick that I haven't even had a chance to check out because I've been so hard at work. There's Halloweenies, there's Kyle Meredith with, I mean, it's ludicrous just how many cool podcasts we've got, and I'm so honored to be on this network. I'm so honored to take this journey with you. Thank you so much for tuning in and hanging out with us. My name is Mark with a C. This is Discography. We're going to get back to the show in just a second. This has been Just a Few Links That Matter. Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know, you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of Discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com cos and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com cos. Now, back to Mark. Getting back to our story, Pete Townsend would actually produce an album for Lawrence Ball in 2012, January actually, using a combination of Ball's harmonic maths and Pete's Lifehouse method. The music would partially be made from the synthesized data of imaginary sitters and partially based on data from Sid Barrett, Hugh Hopper, and Georgie Leggetti. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But of course, the very first track was formed for Mehir Baba. A live Who album tentatively titled Live at the Budokan was quickly announced and withdrawn in April of that same year, and if you can believe it, that Flash Fearless vs. the Zorg Women movie finally premiered in New York in June of 2012. Other notable 2012 happenings were the Who being asked to play the closing ceremonies for the Olympics, Pete's long-rumored autobiography, Who I Am, finally hit the stands, and get this, the Who went back on the road with a brand new production of Quadrophenia. This time around, though, they'd dispense with the narration altogether, as well as the guests for the most part. 
though now Pete and Roger would be backed up by no less than eight other musicians, taking three keyboardists on the road, none of which were John Rabbit Bunderick, but interestingly with a brand new musical director in the multifaceted Frank Symes. Simon Townsend would now be coming along for each successive ride, even being handed a few lead vocals now and again. Technology may not have totally served Lifehouse, but it had finally caught up to Quadrophenia at least. And for things like Keith's vocal turn in Bellboy, they just pipe his voice through the PA and show live footage of him, never handing his rightful place to anyone else again. And to include John, they had taken a bass solo recorded in 2000 at the Royal Albert Hall and placed it in the dead center of the song 515, just so most of the band could play together again in some form or fashion. also saw the standalone release of that show that we might have gotten instead of live at Leeds. Remember how they put the tapes on and realized that they hadn't recorded John's bass? Well, it turns out if they'd fast-forwarded the tapes just a bit, they'd have seen that this issue only affected the first four or maybe five songs, but everything clearly worked out for the best. The affected songs were fixed in Pro Tools using John's bass parts from the Leeds gig. It can get a little bit messy, but hey, it is definitely better than not hearing the gig at all. The show had been first released in a special deluxe version of Live at Leeds, and again, there's been a lot of those reissues, we'll talk about them a little bit more in the epilogue episode. The discography of The Who can be a bit of a minefield, and there's just no proper way to walk across it. Patience will often reward you, as in recent years, floodgates open when we least expect them, and are usually at odds with anything that's been hinted at by the group. Many hardcore Who fans have taken a stance of, well, I'll believe that's coming out when I'm holding it in my hands, and that's probably not the least healthy way to go about it. Once you get serious about collecting the Who, the journey will never end. And as much as we've said here at Discography, I've mostly been talking about the major releases, and only in broad strokes. Take a look at the who.info just to see how deep this well actually goes, and understand that I could devote a full year to this group, and I would not even possibly come close to covering everything. That said, 2014 marked 50 years since the release of that faithful first Who single, I Can't Explain, but also the auspicious beginnings of the band as we know them today. To commemorate what started it all, 50 years later, a film called Lambert and Stamp appeared, which finally put the finishing touches on the story that Kit and Chris had begun in their search for a rock group to make a film out of. They got their film after all. But the story simply doesn't end here, with Pete and Roger taking charge to celebrate their achievements both together and apart. March of 2014 saw the release of a collaborative album by Roger and a gentleman named Wilco Johnson, who you might know from the band Dr. Feelgood. His first name is spelled W-I-L-K-O, not to be confused with the newer indie rock band. The pair had a chat and an awards ceremony in 2010, deciding to make a record together. However, when Mr. Johnson was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it appeared that this might actually end up being the last record he'd ever make. Drawing on their mutual love for Johnny Kidd and the Pirates and the sound of those early power trios creating a British hybrid of rock and R&B, together they made one of the most solid, straight-up, no-frills rock albums around, and Roger hadn't sounded this vital, impassioned, and ready to go in about as long as I can recount. In the span of only three weeks,
weeks, the duo had whipped Going Back Home, the album, into shape, sounding like a band that had been playing together for years, and in the case of Norman Watt Roy and Dylan Howe, well, they actually had been playing together for years as the rhythm section for Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Never, ever underestimate the power of a rhythm section that locks together as one. She tells me I'm the only one Somehow I don't think that's a fact And that sound is pretty steady across the record for about 35 glorious minutes of plug-in-and-go rock music. Wilco Johnson is the main writer for 10 of the 11 songs here, but to these ears, the slight variation in feel when they'd take on a cover song like Bob Dylan's Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window is exactly the right amount of change in feel needed to keep the album from sounding kind of samey, which, to be fair, it actually might come across that way on the very first spin. repeated listens that brought me around to this passion project. At first, the described sound didn't ebb and flow quite as much as I had hoped, but multiple spins reveal exactly what's going on on Going Back Home. Two rock and roll lifers that have every reason to think that every song they sing might be their very last chance, so they take every note as seriously as the last. All that this heart of mine Going Back Home isn't so much a collection of songs as it is a vantage point into a vibe. A vibe carried by those who have been providing entertainment to others for so long that their own best therapy seems to have become that very aforementioned entertainment. A beautiful and inspiring circle, with a cool rock album as a souvenir. And against all odds, Wilco Johnson braved through an aggressive and invasive surgery, and despite initially having been given less than a year to live, Wilco Johnson is still around as of this taping in October of 2018. came for The Who to celebrate their 50th anniversary, they did not screw around. A commemorative double-disc set featuring a good portion of the band's singles and popular radio tracks were compiled in a set simply titled The Who Hits 50. The collection would round itself off with a brand new track called Be Lucky, named after Roger's usual closing statement at concerts in recent years. Turn to some of the more lighthearted and whimsical stuff that many of their early singles were made of, while also name-checking newer artists. The Who hadn't sounded this playful in as long as I can remember at this point. off a 50th anniversary tour in November 2014 that would take two years and multiple continents to complete, Pete, Roger, and Simon were joined by many of the folks from Roger's solo tours, the Quadrophenia jaunt in 2012, still with trusty soundman Bob Pridden doing the monitor mixes from Pete's left side. Unfortunately, Roger was quickly sidelined with an incredibly disastrous bout of viral meningitis necessitating that many shows would be postponed and cancelled. And while this was certainly an inconvenience for fans, few knew that Roger genuinely was believed to be at death's door, and there was doubt that he'd ever grace a stage again, let alone walk. The band would soldier on as normal while Roger tried to get back into fighting shape with each passing performance. Put us. Talking about my generation. 
Meanwhile, Pete's solo catalog had been out of print for years, but a deal was struck with Universal Music to ensure a successful reissue program. And the first release was a slightly off-the-wall compilation that picked two tracks each from most of Pete's bigger solo releases. It was called Truancy, but most importantly, there's two new tracks at the end. The Growling Guantanamo, and a song that was at least at one time a contender for Endless Wire, the rather sweet song, How Can I Help You, Sir? How can I help you recover When you claim all is well How can you ever be her lover But she can break your shell How can I heal you? Some souvenir live releases from the Who Hits 50 tour would follow. Now some shows, well pretty much all the shows, were available for download at thewho.com, but there were also standalone home releases like The Who Live in Hyde Park where they played to a massive crowd. And there'd be a proposed tour where the band would again play Tommy in full, but they only did so for two nights at the Royal Albert Hall. See. In sad news, Pete had uncovered so much inner turmoil and trauma in his therapy that he began to find Tommy impossibly emotionally difficult to perform, which is made all too clear by his incredibly reserved demeanor on the eventual release of one of those shows to home video. of this taping, Pete Townsend is still in the middle of a year-long Who sabbatical in 2018, while Roger Daltrey is gearing up to release his own autobiography. It's provisionally titled Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, and uh, it's likely already out by the time you're hearing this unless something's horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> but the story is not over yet, and we're actually in a pretty sweet spot for Who futures. Now what am I talking about? Well, on the 1st of June in 2018, Roger Daltrey released his latest solo album. It's called As Long As I Have You. Or at least the spine says that it's a Roger Daltrey album, but please allow me to lob an alternate idea your way. So if Endless Wire can be considered by some fans as a Pete Townsend solo album with Roger on two-thirds of the vocals, this album can absolutely be considered a Who album, as Pete plays guitar on two-thirds of the record that Roger sings on the entirety of. Kind of like the McVicker soundtrack, a secret Who album, and one that Roger seems to have directed, and frankly, it's just a stunner. It's not just Roger's best solo album of all time, bar none, it's potentially the most fitting final statement possible from a guy who has seen and done more than you've ever forgotten. Also worth mentioning that though work began on the album in 2014, it was actually a bit of a surprise release, as Daltrey had recently stated in the press that there was simply no reason to make records since no one buys them anymore. Yet this album was announced shortly after those comments, so maybe he'd been trying to throw us off the trail. One thing that can't be argued is that, were it not for Pete, this album likely wouldn't exist at all. Roger only decided against shelving the LP after Pete insisted on liking it all enough to join in. That's a hint of the title track, and frankly, there's just no arguing that Roger hasn't sounded this strong, passionate, and in control of his own instrument in years, but there's a lot going on here, just on this track alone. Originally a hit for Garrett Mims, it was a tune that was popular right when the high numbers were perfecting their maximum R&B, and as the group played a ton of covers, this may not just be a nod to the period, but also Roger circling back to a track that he likely used to cover in the earliest and most formative days. Plus, the McCrary sisters are the ladies on the backing vocals that throw things in a sort of a gospel feel, which absolutely works for something Who-related because, well, Who tracks aren't exactly a stranger to spirituality. But that Who vibe? 
You just can't argue it once you've heard the Stephen Stills penned track called How Far. No matter Those acoustic tones are unmistakably Pete's feel, and there's a driven yet road-weary vibe present that's even reminiscent of some of the more understated fare on Who By Numbers, and that road-weary vibe is one of the two major running threads running through the album, especially punctuated by the slow-burning Stax Volt feel of Roger's take on Katie Oslin's Where Is A Man To Go. As Long As I Have You as an album feels like a few love letters. One obvious aspect is that, sure, there's some love songs and Roger's been married to Heather since 1971, so it's not a stretch to imagine this is a record heavily inspired by her, but it also doesn't shy away from references to living out of a suitcase and could likely be a love letter to music in general. But easier to say, As Long As I Have You is a love letter to everything that Roger loves and such a positive, affirming, and genuinely moving collection feels like a massive and welcome surprise after such a long and illustrious career. While Roger co-wrote two songs here, this feels like it's exceptionally curated for a very specific vibe. And it ties up a lot of loose ends. For example, many of these tracks are tunes that Raj had been inspired by over the years, but he teased that The Who had considered doing an album of Back to Basics covers in the 2000s, and this is likely the manifestation of that project. And that makes me a bit sad that the album isn't fully attributed to The Who, because how rad would it be to have the knowledge that the friggin' Who covered Nick Cave's Into My Arms? Into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord. Into my but also, remember that various members of The Who had teased since 1999 that there were plenty of songs available to put on another record, and one of the first titles mentioned in those interviews was called Certified Rose, and the country-tinged ode to Roger's daughter? I've seen rumors that the song may have even been attempted at some point with John Entwistle, but I've only ever seen fans speculate about that, so I can't say for sure. And while it's clearly that the Western soul feel would have stuck out like a sore thumb on Endless Wire, it's a pretty nice and sweet song from someone who doesn't fancy themselves as much of a writer. being honest here, I'm a little sad that this will never really be seen as the secret Who album it appears to be for me. The take on Stevie Wonder's You Haven't Done Nothing is one of Roger's angriest vocal performances this side of Cry If You Want, with Pete playing some of his chunkiest guitar in years, all framed by some really tasteful brass. <laughs> Let's be straight here. This is an album that was almost never completed due to Roger's near-fatal bout with viral meningitis, and it plays through like a man who has experienced nearly all that life could ever offer, offering up not just examples of his formative inspirations, his renewed zeal for living and singing, but that what matters most is what you're going home to. Whatever you consider home to be, that's what's real. We're all always heading home. We're always heading home. If As Long As I Have You were to be the last new release from a member of The Who, it'd still be a fitting cap on an illustrious, explosive, amazing, and almost hard to conceive of history. It brings everything full circle, and despite Pete Townsend being rightfully looked at as The Who's life force, it's helpful to remember that Roger actually started the group, and is ultimately the leader, the guide. And in 37 minutes, he wraps up a lifetime's worth of memories and lessons into his best and most moving work outside of his group. It's the perfect place to leave off. For now. 
there's more story to be written, of course. Pete Townsend may have taken that year-long sabbatical from Who Work, but his wife Rachel is putting together a musical called The Seeker, and it's going to contain some of that orchestral music Pete worked on in the late 1970s. And this isn't Rachel's first rodeo with that kind of thing. If you've heard about classic quadrophenia, well, she put it together and it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. She arranged quadrophenia for orchestra and it really highlights just how complex that music is. Meanwhile, Roger feels that it's his duty to sing for as many people as he can for as long as he possibly can. The story isn't over, but if it somehow were, it's not a legacy that one can fault for nearly any reason other than all that cool stuff in the vault like that show from San Francisco in 1971, but haven't I said enough? where we're going to cut discography for this week. Thanks so much. We are done with the story itself, but we've still got another episode coming next week, which is either exactly what you think it's going to be based on some things that I've hinted at, or it is something you could not have predicted unless you're a soothsayer, in which case I've got some questions for you. Please contact me, soothsayer. Discography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network, but it's really edited and produced and mixed and all that good stuff by little old me, Mark with a C, right here in my home studio in Orlando, Florida. It's a nice little lo-fi setup. It's comfy. It's cozy. And I'd like to just take a moment to send a big shout out to anybody who has crossed my path personally while I've been working on this season. I've hinted at it a few times that this season nearly fucking broke me, and it's true. The amount of research, the amount of work that I did for this season, really, unless Cat Blackard was here to help me out, this was all me doing this, of, you know, except for the Who doing their entire fucking career. But hey, who's counting, right? So listen, a big shout out to you if you had to deal with me on any level while I was recording this. Thank you so very much. And to you, dear listener, for sticking with us, thank you so much for supporting the Consequence Podcast Network. If you're having a good time with this series, please tell your friends, rate and review us on iTunes, and hey, if you get bored in the middle of, you know, the week while you're waiting for more stuff to come out, check out some of our other fine programming on the Consequence Podcast Network. There's certainly something, something a little off-kilter there that's just right for you. I mean, not that I'm partial to the network or anything, but hey, I've already said way too much, and I don't know that I can explain much more, pun intended. I'm Mark with a C, and I'll see you next time, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network.